Uh, it's good to be back, you guys. Being gone uh, the last two weeks uh, on vacation, and uh, I did something I've never done before. I turned my cell phone off. Uh, I left it on the kitchen counter, and on the way out the door, Jenna said, "You left your cell phone in there." I said, "I know, I left my cell phone in there. Uh, I want to leave it there for nine days." She said, "You're going to take it with you." I said, "That's fine." And she said, "Well, if I need to get hold of you, I'm like, I'm always going to be with someone else who has a cell phone. We can call them." And um, Ended up, I didn't turn it on for nine days, and it was awesome. So I probably missed your phone calls. I don't have voicemail, and uh, I had 122 texts, and um, it's all taken care of. So it's good to be back with you guys. Today we're starting a series on Jonah. Uh, Jonah's uh, usually thought uh, uh, to be just for children, and I think what we'll find out is Jonah is for all of us. And we're going to do, there's four chapters in Jonah. We'll do a chapter a week uh, to get us through the end of July, and uh, we'll get back towards the start of school in August. Um, so we'll start our series on Jonah this evening with Jonah chapter 1. Uh, let me pray, and um, we'll read our, uh, and we'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for your word, uh, Lord, that uh, your word you've given to us, that you want us to know what you're like. Uh, you want us to know what we're like, and you want us to know what our world is like. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that tonight. Do that uh, through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that there would be applications made uh, to individuals here uh, that I never thought of. <laughs> uh, but you did, and you will impress upon the hearts of your people. So, Lord, I pray you would make us uh, a more thankful people, a more holy people, uh, because of our time uh, in your word. Praise things your name. Amen. Um, one of the great benefits of uh, having young children around is that I get to watch a lot of cartoons. Um, I took a pretty long hiatus, you know, middle schoolish, uh, till now or till the last few years. And if you were to look at my Netflix account, all my suggested shows are all cartoons, all of them. And um, I, I, Jen, I can't seem to keep up with the pace of watching shows so that it's kind of even on the suggested viewing. Um, but it, it, we watch a lot of cartoons around. So one of my favorites of late is Trolls. Um, anybody seen Trolls? We have some Trolls watchers. You need to watch it. Um, it's a new one. I, I, I love the storyline, truthfully. Uh, I've choked up a couple times at it. And um, it doesn't hurt that Justin Timberlake sings the whole soundtrack. Um, but these trolls, uh, these trolls are, are happy little people. Uh, they, 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 all they do is sing, dance, and hug. Sing, dance, and hug. Sing, dance, and hug. Sounds like Justin Timberlake. He sings, dance, and hugs. Um, and the trolls, they're, they're happy like this all the time. And there's another group of people in the movie called the Bergens. Uh, the Bergens are these great big people who aren't happy. They're pretty depressed, and they're really angry. And they think the only way they can be happy is if they eat a troll. And so on a holiday called Trollstice, uh, they attempt to eat a troll. The problem is, for 20 years, they can't find any trolls. Uh, the trolls have kind of built a, an alternative civilization that the Bergens don't know where it is. And they've been singing, dancing, and hugging for 20 years. And there's one troll who isn't happy. There's one troll who is depressed. There's one troll who's a, who's a rugged survivalist. Uh, and he plans and prepares for the incoming Bergen invasion that he thinks is going to happen any day. So he's got a big underground fortress. He's got 10 to 11 years of supplies. And uh, it sounds like people in our society, some, doesn't it? Um, but Branch has all this covered up. He's got this ready to go. Uh, well, the, troll, the, the Bergens do come. They take some of the trolls. They kidnap them, put them in their fanny pack, and the Bergen goes back to Bergentown with these trolls in, 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 in tow. Well, the leader of the trolls is Poppy. 
and uh, Poppy wants to go and, and rescue the, those who have been kidnapped. And she goes to Branch because Branch knows more about the Bergens than anybody because he t spends his whole life preparing for their invasion. And she says, Branch, I want you to go with me uh, to, 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 to come get our friends back. And, but he isn't happy. He's never taken care of anybody. He doesn't sing, dance, or hug. Why would he care anything about the people and Bert, those who have been kidnapped? And he wants to use this, this, underground, uh, this underground safe place that he's been building. And so Poppy comes up with this plan where she puts all the other trolls in his underground fortress and she convinces him to go rescue her friends. But Branch goes very unwillingly. He's kicking and screaming his whole way there. And maybe you know what it's like to be an unwilling participant. Branch was in the movie. Uh, for me, it's family pictures. I'm an unwilling participant in family pictures. Maybe you're an unwilling participant when you go, when you're dragged to a sporting event that you don't want to go to. Maybe you're an unwilling participant when it comes to cutting the grass. Uh, maybe you're an unwilling participant when it comes to going to your in-law's Christmas party. Uh, when it comes to going to your company orientation, you're an unwilling participant. You show up, but you don't want to be there. And the last people that we think to be uncooperative participants are missionaries. We think missionaries are kind of like trolls for Jesus, don't we? All they do is sing, dance, and hug for Jesus. But I think what we're going to find out t t tonight is that this really, this notion is farce. Jonah is called to be a missionary to Nineveh, and Jonah finds this calling to be utterly unacceptable. So let's read our text uh, about Jonah. We'll read the whole chapter here, all 17 verses. <clears throat> Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he, Jonah, said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, 
for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of this fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. So we've got kind of three, uh, three chapters, if you will, within this one chapter. Uh, we have three scenes. One is the call of God to Jonah. Uh, the second one is the pursuit of God for Jonah and the sailors. And then the last part, we have the rescue of Jonah and the sailors. Let's deal with the call of God. First three verses. Uh, it's really clear, isn't it? it it's, it's unambiguous. There should be no confusion about what this call is about. Uh, the, the, the call was, the who of the call is Jonah. You see that? The where of the call is Nineveh. The what of the call is the content of his message. And the why of the call was because the, the Ninevites were in great calamity. So you have the who, Jonah. Uh, Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom after Israel and Judah had split. And you can read more about Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14, where he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam. So being a prophet was his vocation. It was his lifetime calling. It wasn't this one-time event, and this is the only time that Jonah was ever to act as a prophet. He had acted as a prophet his whole career. It's just that this is all that he's famous for. So that's the who. We have the where, Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh, you could find uh, Nineveh in, in modern day Mosul, Iraq. That's where Nineveh is. It's in Iraq. It's east of where Jonah is. And Assyria was the capital, what was the, was the nation in which Nineveh was a part of. And Assyria was a major player in the ancient Near East. It was a dominant nation. In fact, in the not too distant past, uh, Assyria had, had, had ruled over Israel. And when they had ruled over Israel, Israel was, was a vassal. The vassal is not a word we use a lot, but what it meant to be a vassal is that they were subjugated uh, by the Assyrians. They had to pay taxes to them. They had to pay homage to them. They had to stay in line with them or else they were annihilated. So being a vassal was better than being annihilated, but you can see the Israelites didn't have a very high opinion of the Assyrians. They hated them deeply, just like Jonah did. And what was he to do? What was Jonah supposed to do? What was he supposed to preach to the Ninevites. Well, he was supposed to say, he was supposed to call out against them. Call out against them. Now that sounds like that God is some kind of, that he's some kind of cosmic tyrant, doesn't it? He sends his prophet with a message and his message is to call out against them. But think about it for a minute. It might seem that he's a cosmic tyrant, but this is loving for God. If God didn't care about them, he would have left them in the dark because he didn't care about them. But he cares about them deeply. And this is what disturbs Jonah so much is that God does care about the Ninevites. Even if his message seems like one of judgment to us, it was actually one to call them to judgment so that they might repent so that God might save them. That's the message. That's the what of, of the call. And the why of the call, what, what, what is, we see there is that they're evil. The Ninevites' evil has come up before me. Well, this word evil kind of has a, has a double meaning. It can mean, it can be translated as just calamity. 
So the evil, if you call it calamity, it's got two sides to it. It could be a disaster has come upon them or that they are great wicked people. But either way, no matter what's going on in them, we don't know anymore from the text that things are not as they should be in Nineveh. And God wants to do something about it. He wants to bring redemption to Nineveh. And he wants to do it through Jonah's preaching ministry. But here's the problem. This is the call. This is the plan. But there's something that stands in the way between God on one side and Nineveh on the other. It's Jonah. Jonah's the obstacle here. And verse 3 records that Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. And it says it twice. You see it right there in verse 3? Redundancy is like putting exclamation point after exclamation point after exclamation point after this. What the author, what the, what the narrator is trying to do is say, Jonah is a rebel. And he's a rebel of first class. But see how Jonah responds. He doesn't barter with God. Other people in the scriptures barter with God when God calls them to do things. You know, kind of like we do. God, I'll go to Africa if you'll do this for me. You've never done that. Maybe it's just me. He doesn't barter with God. Um, and he also doesn't argue with God. He doesn't say a word. He just runs. In fact, his running is in the complete opposite direction. We're talking about Israel. We're, we're closely where modern day Israel is. This is where Jonah is. And God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is pretty much uh, mostly east and a little bit north from where he's at. And Tarshish, I found out, Tarshish is in Spain. Okay. Spain over here, Nineveh here, Israel here. <laughs> Jonah's going the complete opposite direction of where God's calling him. Jonah's really trying, and it's going to cost him a lot of money, and it's going to take him a long time to get there. That's how dead set this missionary is on disobeying the Lord. But why is he so dead set? What has made Jonah this way? Why, why, why is he such a rebel? It's because he's a racist. I know that sounds harsh. It's probably a bit more politically correct to call him a proud Hebrew. Perhaps call him a nationalist. But the truth is, he's a racist. And the sad story of human history is that we're all sinners. We were all born this way because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And being a sinner, it, comes, it, it takes on a variety of forms. But one of the forms is that our racial identity becomes something that we use as a trump card against other people. If people don't share our racial identity, we discriminate against them. It's in our hearts. And our preference goes even further when we say this is our racial preference to when we say that our racial preference is God's racial preference. And that's what Jonah's doing here. So if I were God, and I'm sure glad I'm not, I would have ditched Jonah right here. I would have said I'm picking somebody else. Yet what we see in Jonah is a God who doesn't give up on Nineveh and doesn't give up on Jonah. So God in his rich mercy, though it's severe, he pursues Jonah. This is what we see in verses 4 to 14. So God cares for Nineveh, and he cares for Jonah too much to let Jonah's rebellion derail his plan. He's got a plan of redemption that he wants to carry out. So he's going to pursue Jonah, and, he's going to and it's going to be very disruptive. <laughs> Jonah's plan is to go to Tarshish. 
God's plan is to send a storm to disrupt Jonah. And this is where things get really interesting. Let me just pull, pull out a few things from verses 4 to 14. During the storm, uh, notice uh, how the sailors are compared with Jonah. Okay? During the storm, Jonah sleeps. And what are the sailors doing? Do you see it? The, sailor, the sailors are actively trying to throw cargo overboard so they might be saved. So they're doing something about the storm. Jonah's not. When Jonah is found out to be the cause of the storm, later on, uh, Jonah wants to die. He says, throw me overboard. Do you see what the sailors do? The sailors try to get to shore so that Jonah might live. Also in these verses, you see that Jonah says he fears God in verse 9. You see that? But down in 14, you see a group of sailors who actually fear God. Jonah says he does. The sailors actually do at the end. You see a captain in here. And the captain, he's more concerned for Jonah's life than Jonah is concerned for the sailors' lives. Jonah's a prophet. He should be the one trying to save these people. But the captain, the pagan, is more concerned about Jonah's life. So when you compare the sailors and Jonah, you learn a lot. Let's look at the sailors first, and then we'll look at Jonah. Uh, the sailors, uh, they look a lot better than Jonah, don't they? It seems like they're the good people that God would have to accept, right? And usually Christians, they think uh, that they're the good people. And bad people are not the Christians. But this story blows up this whole paradigm. See, there's this thing called common grace. Uh, and, and the doctrine of common grace is that God has not allowed all people, even unbelievers, be as bad as they could be as a result of the fall. So within unbelievers, uh, there are still remnants of kindness toward their fellow man. Within unbelievers, there are still really good citizens that you want to be neighbors with. Within unbelievers, you still see a real respect for creation. It remains in them. Even if they aren't Christians. Now that doesn't mean that they're Christians. It just means that God's grace has been extended to them, though it isn't saving. But part of what common grace also means is that people are grasping for the transcendent. Both Acts 17 and Romans 1, uh, what you'll see are group of non-Christians that are, that, that are being religious, just like the sailors are religious here. And if we're not religious, if we don't look out for that there's a God somewhere, uh, that we make creation our God. This is what we see in our society. This is what we see, in, and, and maybe you call yourself an atheist. But I would challenge you, and I, and I would let the rest of us know that, it, that we are tempted not just to call God something transcendent, but we're, called, we're, we're tempted to call the creation transcendent. We're, we're, we're giving religious values to things that God actually made. Things like sex, things, things like money, things like family and career. But these things are just created. But, but because, we're, because the common grace has been extended to us, we're reaching out to give transcendent, transcendent meaning to something, anything. And at no time do we grasp for the transcendent more than tragedy. See, for the sailors, it was this storm, wasn't it? Wasn't it? This, was their, this was their tragedy, and they, they prayed in a hurry. They had an involuntary reflex to pray. And we do too. We get religious quick when things go bad. People who never come to church start coming to church when things go bad in their life. People who don't pray start praying when things go bad. 
But here's the point for me and you today. God will send a storm to you, whether you're a Christian or not, to ruin your life in the short term so he might save it in the long term. So what's your storm? What painful circumstances God brought into your life to bring you to repentance and faith? That's the sailors. What about Jonah? Uh, you see the satire in, in this passage, don't you? You know, satire like The Office. Um, the Office is trying to uh, show uh, plays on issues that really exist in corporate offices across America. It makes you laugh about it, but the truth is that it's truth. See, satire, it, it, uh, satire comes in the back door to expose us by using humor. I found myself giggling at several points this week. And I was saying things like, Jonah, you're an idiot. I just want to make fun of him. But then all of a sudden I say, whoa, Jonah's just like me. My life is just as absurd as Jonah's is. See, the narrator knows this. The narrator knows that if he starts accusing us of the things that he's accusing Jonah of, that we're going to, it's real easy to get defensive. Because what accusation does is it comes in the front door. But satire comes in the back. And when it comes in the back and it's in our house, we're dead to rights. And no place is this more true than when it comes to race. That's what the narrator's trying to do here. See, if you're accused of being a racist, you would deny it. But by using satire, the narrator catches us in the act. I got caught in the act this morning. I went on a run and uh, I, 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 and I caught myself because this morning I, I thought I avoid parts, in my, parts of my neighborhood where people don't look like me when I go on a run. Why do I do that? I, I would never say I'm not going there because these kind of people live there. But if you were to peel back the layers of the onion, I would probably say, and you had to make me say, well, why don't you run over there? I'd say, well, that's the hood. That part of town is a bit dicey, it's sketchy, it's shady, it's dangerous there. Could that be my inner Jonah? Is the reason that I say that so that I don't have to go there and get to know those people who are poor and aren't white? And perhaps you're like me. And you just continue to self-select into your own demographic. Uh, but maybe coming in the front door like I just did, you start saying, I'm not a racist. I'm not in the KKK or nothing. I don't, I don't use r racial slurs or tell racial jokes. I'm not violent towards those who are different than me. I hear you. But you're, what you're doing is comparing yourself to others in order to let yourself off the hook. But as Christians, we're forced to accept what Jesus says. And he says we really are that bad. You know Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount? He says if you've hated somebody, you've murdered them. If you've lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. That means if we've prejudged someone based on the color of their skin, then we're racists. And the good news of the gospel is that God pursues racists. 
And he pursued Jonah and he saved him. That's what we see in verses 15 to 17 is that he saved him. God gets what he wants in his pursuit. He rescues the sailors on one hand and Jonah on the other. The sailors are, are, are rescued when Jonah is tossed overboard. Jonah is rescued when he's swallowed up by a whale. Sure, we talk about the sailors. The sailors are spared when the winds cease. But their saving goes much deeper than when the winds cease. Look at verse 5. Why are they afraid in verse 5? They're afraid because of the what? The storm. Look at verse 10. They are exceedingly afraid when Jonah tells them he worships the God who made the sea and the dry land. So they were afraid of, uh, they were afraid of, uh, of the sea in verse 5. Now they're afraid of Jonah in verse 10. And you would think that if, this, if, if God got rid of the storm, and if they get rid of Jonah, then their fear is going to cease. But what happens is the storm, the, the storm ceases, they throw Jonah overboard, and their fear in verse 16 increases all the more. Do you see it? They feared the Lord exceedingly. Why? Why would their fear increase when they got rid of Jonah and the storm stopped? It's because they had a willing substitute in Jonah. See, Jonah wasn't coerced. He didn't have to have his arm twisted. You see what he says there? It says, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. See, the sailors saw the real God right there. They saw a real God who had real wrath against real sin as God pursued Jonah by sending the storm. Because of Jonah's disobedience, they also saw the love of God when you, who, who was willing to accept Jonah's loving sacrifice. And when you realize that there is a God who takes sin seriously enough to punish it on one hand and loves you at great cost to himself on the other, fear is the result. See, fear of God in the scriptures is a positive term. It means reverence or awe. It's not negative in the least. We don't use it that way, but this is the way the scriptures use it. But you need a God who punishes sin and a God who loves sacrificially in order to have real fear. Because if you only have a God who loves, who doesn't punish sin, you don't take him very seriously. And you don't have much reverence for him. But if you only have a God of love, or if you only have a God, if you only have a God of wrath, only, only have a God of fury against sin, you're going to be anxious and insecure and petrified that you might be doing something wrong. But when you combine the both, it gives us fear that we see right here in the sailors. But this isn't the only place in the scriptures that we see a willing substitute. There is a greater Jonah. In our New Testament reading uh, it, that Celeste read earlier, it comes from the lips of Jesus. And he called himself the greater Jonah. So by calling himself Jonah, he's saying that there's similarity between me and Jonah. And there was. They're both willingly give themselves to save the others. That's what Jonah did. He said, hey, throw me overboard so that I might save you. Jesus says, hey, 
uh, you, you kill me. It was voluntary. If you, as you read the Gospels, you see more and more that Jesus was in charge all every step of the way because he was a willing substitute. So that's how they're similar. They're also similar in that they both endured the sea. Jonah endured the Mediterranean Sea in a storm. Jesus endured the, the, the sea of God's wrath. But they're dissimilar. Jesus says he's a greater Jonah. See, Jonah deserved to be thrown into the sea. Jesus was the only person ever born of a woman to never sin. He didn't deserve the wrath of the Father. He didn't deserve his sea. But Jesus endured the wrath of God for your sin as a willing substitute, friends. He sacrificed himself so that you might live. So do you see this love and this wrath combined? It calls for our reverence and it calls for our awe. So you know God's call in your life. He asks for everything. And we don't obey his call, not because we don't know what to do. We don't obey his call because we don't want to do it. This is our story too. We've been given a call. And God pursues us just like he pursued Jonah. He, he even seems to ruin your life in the short term so that he might have you for the long term. He's going to use disaster to get your attention. And all the while, what are we doing? We're asleep. And God will bring even bizarre circumstances and bizarre people into your life to save us. So friend, can I ask you some questions? Will you quit running today? Will you wake up from your slumber this day? Will you live in fear of God who both loves you and takes your sin seriously this day? Let's pray together. Father, it's amazing that you love us. Uh, we read the story of Jonah and we say with the song we read before the sermon, I am one of those. Or you used your word, you came in the back door and we say you got us. So Lord, I, I pray that we would willingly submit our lives to you. That we'd quit running. And we'd fear you with our whole lives. In Jesus' name, amen.